Who were the white settlers in Florida known as crackers? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Elizabeth, and I'm your host on this episode on why certain white American groups were referred to as crackers. My family is very into Disney World, and as such, most of my knowledge about Florida is based on the best route to Orlando. If I had any other awareness of Florida, it was most likely from the Marx Brothers 1929 film Coconuts about the Florida land boom. Imagine my surprise then, when I visited the Pioneer Village at Shingle Creek a part of the Osceola History Center in Central Florida, and not only learned that prior to the 1920s, Florida was considered a portion of the U.S.'s frontier, but also that the term cracker was part of this Floridian history. As a Northerner, I only knew of the word cracker as one that denigrated poor whites, and I had no idea that it had any specific history, nor that the history or etymology of the word was also part of Floridian history. And so, dear listeners, we now have this episode on the history of the word cracker as it was used in Florida. According to James Denham, who is currently professor of history and director of the Lawton M. Childs Jr. Center for Florida History at Florida Southern College, the first scholar to study crackers was Frank Owsley, although Owsley referred to them as plain folk. Owsley was a history professor at Vanderbilt for most of his career. In his 1949 work, Plain Folk in the Old South, Housley saw the Plain Folk as a sort of southern middle class who supported the Confederacy over states' rights rather than slavery, since many of those he termed this middle class didn't, according to Housley, own enslaved people. Housley did not include evidence for these findings, and later scholars, including Carrie Lee Merritt, whose book Masterless Men, and some of her Twitter threads, addresses the question of the non-slaveholding white southern men debate Owsley's conclusion. I have on our footnoting history further reading a section specifically listing works that engage with Owsley's argument, and if you're interested in understanding the role of whites, especially poor whites, in the 18th and 19th century South, I encourage you to check out the readings listed there. But what we do get from Owsley is an examination of who these people were. As social history became a more dominant thread of historical analysis in the latter half of the 20th century, though, we see more and more works examining crackers. This distinction of social history is important. When discussing crackers, there are two historiographical arguments about how they should be viewed. Historiography is the study of history, which means it's how we look at how historians look at history. The main distinction, the main historiographical distinction, therefore, between how historians view crackers is either as a social class or as a cultural group. For historians interested in crackers as a social class, They examine their roots as poor whites in the United States and how they fit into this larger story and the larger story of class in America. For those interested in crackers as a specific culture, they focus on crackers and what made this group exceptional and not just another poor white group in the United States. The further reading on footnoting history includes both types of works. But as there are two ways to study crackers, there are two threads we need to trace before we can truly understand the context of our Floridian crackers. The first thread is the evolution of poor whites in the British American colonies and the United States. The second thread is the etymology of the word cracker itself. 
Poor European whites were present in the colonial settlerism of the British colonies from the beginning. Unsurprisingly, they were not well regarded. According to Nancy Eisenberg, the T. Harry Williams Professor of History at Louisiana State University, across the 13 colonies and then into the early republic, members of this social class were denigrated as squatters who would move on to any land they could until they were chased off. They were uneducated, coarse, and promiscuous. In this way, while Southern crackers, or Florida crackers, developed with their own label and adapted to the land in which they finally settled, the view of poor whites that they lived under was actually very similar to how most poor white people were viewed throughout the United States. But before we can discuss the use of cracker as a term in Florida, we need to try and trace its roots. The word's origins start in the 1590s and potentially lie with Shakespeare, who in his play King John used the term as an insult meaning a loudmouthed braggart. Soon, the word became identified with Scots-Irish immigrants who moved to the southeastern United States sometime after 1715. For those who have listened to my episode on slavery in Georgia, you'll remember that many of the debates were between immigrants from different areas of Scotland. The Scots-Irish first moved to the Carolinas, then Georgia, and finally Florida. While Florida did not become a U.S. state until 1819 as part of the Adams-O'Nees Treaty, Many of these Scots-Irish settlers had already moved there from the backward areas of the Carolina and Georgia colonies. Even though within the southern colonies the Spanish had been defeated and were deemed to not be a threat since Oglethorpe troops had won in the 1740s during the War of Jenkins' Ear, and I will never not take advantage of a moment to include that war's name, but Georgia settlers were still wary and Florida was still the frontier because of the Seminoles, a Native American tribe. What keeps shocking me but shouldn't? is how crackers in Florida were seen as frontiers people. It was around this time, the late 18th and early 19th centuries, that these white settlers of the backwoods began to be referred to as crackers. We know that there were groups known as crackers in Georgia in the mid-1700s because a South Carolina newspaper noted the frontiermen from Georgia, also known as crackers, had raided a Native American village near Augusta. Additionally, when a mob of Scots-Irish backwoodsmen protested taxation in the 1760s, they were also referred to as crackers. Now hold on, because I'm going to give you three rationales for why they became identified with this term, or even what this term means, and I need you to know that we don't actually know which answer is right. Anecdotally, most people I know believe that the term comes from the crack of the whip that white people who were overseers on plantations used to inflict terror on enslaved peoples. Additional etymologies argue that it was not enslaved peoples that crackers used whipped on, but the cattle they drove, or because these white settlers were known for cracking a joke, or that they cracked corn, a main staple of their diet. What we do know about Southeastern, including Florida crackers, is that during the early Republic, most were not well off, and few were slave owners, nor did they work on plantations. Many of the white settlers who came from adjoining states to Florida did so because they wanted to find better land, or or maybe they just wanted to find land, for growing corn and cotton or for grazing the hogs and cattle they brought with them. White settlers in the backwoods were not economically prosperous, and those who moved to Florida did so in a way that makes me think of the migrant Okies from John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. In the 1800s, poor white families in Georgia would gather all of their belongings, cross into Florida, look for an area that hadn't been settled, and set up a tent and a camp with all of their belongings. They were, and this word was used, squatters, just like other poor whites in the United States. According to non-cracker white settlers in Florida, 
You would see a cracker family camped in one area, and the next week you could see them camped in a better area, until they found a spot to their liking and one in which they could stay. Cracker homes in the first half of the 19th century were viewed as crude, but their houses were intended to be only temporary. They were a migratory people. According to Grady McWinney, who earned his doctorate at Columbia University and joined the League of the South in the 1990s, but left in the early aughts in reaction to the group's increasingly vocal racist and anti-Semitic views, crackers were not identified by economic class, but by culture. While McWinney focused on the Celtic roots, and I do pronounce it Celtic instead of Celtic, and has someone whose DNA keeps showing up as 97% Irish, I'm going to run with that. While McWinney focused on the Celtic roots, as he saw them, of cracker culture— Other historians focused on the cultural aspect of crackers, but not their alleged ethno-heritage. In James Denham's article on crackers in antebellum or pre-Civil War Florida in the Florida Historical Quarterly, Denham argued the crackers had a, quote, value system based on the enjoyment of life instead of the accumulation of property, end quote. There were specific traits that crackers had in common. According to Denham, they, quote, shared a strong adherence to popular democracy, a hatred of Indians, and a firm sense of racial superiority over blacks who they believe were only fit for slavery, end quote. Crackers relied on their extended kin networks, believed in individualism, and settled grudges between themselves. Going to the sheriff or courts to settle a dispute was not seen as an option. Crackers were largely uneducated and illiteracy was high. Their sense of humor was also considered rude or uncouth. In Nancy Eisenberg's work, White Trash, the 400-year- untold story of class in America, she argues that Andrew Jackson was the first cracker president because he fulfilled many of the above requirements. One example that is particularly relevant to our episode is tied to the First Seminole War. Following the War of 1812, Seminoles, as noted above, a Native American tribe in Florida, and Georgia settlers attacked each other pretty regularly. Now remember, Florida was still part of the Spanish Empire, and we were not at war with Spain, even though border groups in Georgia and Florida continued to have skirmishes, as most historical sources put it. In 1818, however, Andrew Jackson invaded Florida to put the skirmishes to an end. According to Jackson, he had President Monroe's permission. According to Monroe, he did not. Within a short time, Jackson, who said he was acting in national self-defense because Spain was unable to control the Seminoles, had declared a military government in Florida. Ultimately, Jackson's invasion of Florida set off events that resulted in the Adams-Onese Treaty in which Spain sold Florida to the United States. If Eisenberg is right, and Jackson was the first, and perhaps the only cracker president, then his actions did make the cracker settlement of Florida possible. The argument that crackers were identified by culture and not economic class in pre-Civil War is supported, according to John Solomon Otto, by an examination of the Florida census records of 1850 and 1860, where, within the Florida pine woods or backwoods, there lived some lower-class farmers who had only a few hundred acres, a handful of cattle, and no enslaved people, while there were also many middle-class or middle-tier farmers who had large farms, dozens of cattle and hogs, and owned one to two enslaved people. Otto concludes from the census records that the majority of crackers were middle-class, like Owsley thought, but that, in contradiction to Owsley's statement that crackers were non-slave-holding people, the majority of Floridian crackers in the antebellum South did, in fact, own enslaved people. This latter point can either be used to argue that crackers were a cultural group, but who did, in fact, own enslaved peoples, or that not all residents of the backwoods should be deemed crackers, as many of those residents were of a higher social class in which they could afford enslaved peoples. For those in the backwoods, though, cattle raising was a main source of income. 
But cattle raising requires a lot of acreage. The backwoods way of life of the antebellum Georgian crackers, for example, was coming to an end by the time of the Civil War. While the wealthier cattle-owning crackers were able to buy land and support themselves, the poorer crackers turned to cotton growing, especially as timber companies logged many of the pine woods the cattle would have used as range. Cotton growing, however, also requires land. In Georgia, by 1900, the term cracker was used for white Georgia mill workers or sharecroppers. Florida saw a different development. Few crackers had turned to cotton growing as the weather didn't suit it there anyway. Instead, the timber companies would lease logged areas to crackers for small amounts. In this way, according to Otto, most Florida crackers continued their traditional way of life until World War II. Okay, we have now reviewed the Floridian cracker from their arrival and squatter past of the early 1800s to the impact of agricultural settlement by the mid to late 1800s. We have also addressed the evolving concept of what was meant by their traditional way of life. But what about the early 20th century? Otto argued that many retained their traditional way of life until World War II. But what did the traditional way of life look like? Were they still, as Denham and Otto described, largely illiterate, distrustful of the law, less worried about being refined and more focused on enjoying life? White supremacists who saw black people as inferior. One insight comes from an unexpected place, Marjorie Kinning Rawlings, who lived among the Florida crackers in the early 20th century and wrote her Pulitzer Prize-winning 1939 book, The Yearling, about a young cracker boy. As Monica Barra, now a documentary filmmaker, explains in her article on Rawlings and cracker culture, while Rawlings was a northerner, or a Yankee, she was also sympathetic to the cracker way of life. In the 1920s and 1930s, many crackers lived near waterways and lakes because they relied on fishing. They also continued to create from corn moonshine, and especially potent alcohol for those not in the know. Rawlings' work also confirms that crackers were still resistant to bringing in the law to settle disputes, and if the law did arrive to arrest someone, a cracker had no problem shooting at the sheriff and his deputies to show his displeasure. And cracker culture still very much embraced white supremacy. Rawlings made the mistake of asking a poor white woman to do her laundry for pay. The woman's husband was enraged because that was a job only to be performed by black people. In the isolated Florida backwoods of the early 20th century, racial segregation was still a fact of life. But cracker culture was on the way out. As Barron notes, by 1930, Florida had created a cow law or fence enclosure law that did lead to reports of mob protests. According to David Nelson, history professor at the Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College in Georgia, in his work on the creation of modern Florida tourism, What would actually lead to the end of the cracker traditional way of life was the Great Depression and the impact of the New Deal. As Nelson notes in the 1930 census, half the population of Florida were farmers who lived in rural areas. Nelson argues that, quote, culturally and economically, the Florida of 1930 resembled the Florida of 1910 more than it did of 1950, end quote. And this new Florida is the Florida many of us recognize. But just because the New Deal changed much of Florida, it can't be seen as the sudden end of crackers. I started this episode by mentioning the Pioneer Village at Shingle Creek, which is part of Osceola County's History Center, and that's where I will end. At the Pioneer Village, there is a James T. Tyson Cracker House. As you read the information panel out front, you learn about how James Tyson built the house in the late 1800s for his growing family. Eventually, he and his wife raised nine children in this one bedroom that didn't have electricity or running water. James Tyson died in the 1930s after being kicked by one of his animals, but his wife continued to live there until her death in the early 1960s. As either an economic class or a cultural group, 
the history of Florida crackers is one of a people from whom many today can trace their roots. Interested in owning some footnoting history merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or Facebook and Instagram as Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>